discipline of the new humanity. Talked in the last hour about the responsibility that God has given us as parents. And now we want to break out the task a little bit more. Um, Let's look to the Lord again for his continued direction. We thank you, Father, for speaking the truth in love to us, revealing yourself in the word. You have said that the secret things belong to you, but the revealed things are for us and for our children that we might keep covenant with you, that we might walk in your ways and experience the rich blessedness in time and eternity that is life and fellowship with God, eternal life. We thank you for the calling that you have given to us as parents. And Lord, maybe this would be a a good time for us to thank you for our parents, Um, the octogenarians and even Some of us down into our 60s, uh, the parents are gone, and some of them have been gone a long time. Some were Christians, some were not. Um, Some, sadly, were sinful and irresponsible and negligent and maybe even abusive. Many of them did the very best they could with what they knew. So we thank you for their memory and for those that are still living, particularly those who are parents, our parents in Christ. Um, We've seen their mistakes and seen their hypocrisies, but we've also seen their sincere efforts to bring us up in the nurture and discipline of the Lord. They have often not had our thanks for their efforts. And they're not really looking for that, but we pray, even as we are thankful to you, that we would be willing to express that gratitude to those who have been your gifts to us. And may we, in turn, pass this goodly heritage to our children and to our grandchildren, and some of us are working on our great-grandchildren now. Lord, we just bless your name and thank you for your faithfulness. And we embrace the responsibility. We rejoice in the command because what you command you will do in us and through us because you have promised. So guide our thoughts in this uh, this session this morning too. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus calls us to baptize and to teach. And certainly that's a commission to the church and as pastors and elders and members of congregations, we have that broad responsibility, but certainly it comes to its focus in our families. We 
bring our children to the Lord in baptism, and we promise not only to pray with them and for them, but to bring them up in the principles of our biblical faith, to teach them, to train them, to instruct them. And so it's that responsibility, that task that we want to think a little bit more about now. Jesus has taught us many things, and he has instructed us to do many things, and we have the responsibility of imparting that information to our children. Now, we say our children, but maybe again, this is so obvious it doesn't need to be mentioned, but let's mention it anyway. These children are not ours. They are the Lord's children. He says as much. At one point in the Old Testament, he finds fault with his people for what they have been doing to his children. In that instance, the parents were pitted against the Lord in his covenantal concerns for his children. They are ours only as a stewardship for which we will one day give an account. And just as we don't want to be that guy who had the one talent, who came back to his master and said, well, basically I was afraid and I didn't do a thing with that talent that you gave me. We sure don't want to appear on Judgment Day and say, well, Lord, we did nothing with the children that you entrusted to us. Now, just in the normal course of having children in your home, you almost have to do something for them. But oftentimes, because of our laziness and our unbelief, we don't do very much more than what's required. It's one of those little ironies, you know. You, you really hammer your kids for not doing anything more than is expected. But sometimes we don't do anything more than what's expected either. And while I'm on that subject, um, think about this phrase from... Um, Psalm 127, verse 5, you know, blessed is the man who has his quiver full of arrow children. I mean, I've heard some macho man actually use that phrase as a kind of a look at me. I got my quiver full of them, you know. Um, But, you know, what, what does that metaphor mean? An arrow, an archer was the long range weapon of ancient warfare. This was a weapon with which you could strike the enemy before he could touch you. And an effective battery of archers could neutralize any number of infantry uh, units because of that. And so when you think about having a quiver full or even a single arrow in your quiver. You're thinking about that child as the long-range weapon of the kingdom of God. We are training our children that we might use them in the battle of the Lord to tear down strongholds and to advance His kingdom of grace in the power of His Spirit a generation out, two generations out, three generations out. Now, maybe if I don't run out of time, which I probably will, we might come back to that at the end. But think in those terms. Um, What are they going to finally be? What's that goal? And, of course, we don't know for sure. Um, 
but thinking strategically. What kind of people do we need to begin to make them now so that when they are adults, they won't just stay in the faith. We certainly want that, but we want them to do some serious damage to the kingdoms of this world, arrayed against the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And that's a wide field. All kinds of professions, all kinds of locations, all kinds of important tasks to be done. And I think that helps us as a little piece of motivational imagination. There they go, Lord. It also, when the time comes, helps you let the release go instead of holding on to that arrow in the bow until you and they are trembling. (laughs) You got to launch. Got to let them go. Now, when we think about our children and their nurture, there's certainly foundational presuppositions, assumptions about them that we're not going to explore, but we'll just mention them. I mean, we ask the question, who are our children? And so we have to understand our children as created in the image and likeness of God, unique creatures. We also have to think of them as fallen in Adam and all of the implications of that. One of my professors in seminary married a little bit later in life, so he had his first uh, uh, child uh, later in life, and boy, you talk about a proud papa, he was really it. And I remember uh, near the end of one of the school years, we had a barbecue before, it was probably not a barbecue because it was Philadelphia, not California. What do they do in Philadelphia? We, well, we had an outdoor party at the seminary, and he took that occasion to introduce his, his little daughter to us, and, and, uh, and he, you know, he was, he was a little, not dour, but serious. So here he's holding up his little daughter with a big smile on his face and he says this is my daughter grace she's totally depraved though you would never guess it (laughs) so they're fallen in adam though for a few minutes you would never guess it and then by god's grace redeemed in christ and and so You know, every system of education has a philosophy of man, an anthropology that undergirds that. you got to know what you think a human being is and what they're good for before you can then say, how should they be taught and trained? And so a biblical anthropology is the necessary presupposition for our nurture of our children. So the first thing you guys got to do, guys and girls, mothers and fathers, if you don't already know, is learn and think through the implications of what the Bible says about human nature. Now often the books about, at least within our circles, reformed circles concerning the family and child rearing, will address these presuppositions But don't just skip over them and say, well, I want to get to the chapter that says, what do I do with a strong-willed child or whatever? Let 
the presuppositions. Let the theology inform your way of thinking about your children, your way of praying for them, and then your way of teaching and instructing them. So when we ask ourselves, what is our task? We can certainly look at Ephesians 6.4. This is where we always go in, in at least those circles that take the Bible seriously, where Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, or the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Various choices in the English translation. Literally, it says, nurture them in discipline and admonition. So nurturing them is sort of the broader category, which is affected through discipline and admonition. It's interesting that word translated nurture here is only used twice in the New Testament here and over in chapter 5 verse 29 where it says of men, no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it. So that's the idea. Sometimes we pit nourishing and cherishing off against discipline and instruction as if they were somehow contradictory to one another. No, we want to nurture our children through discipline and admonition. Now, we could think of this as the, as the positive and the negative side of the task, although it's all positive because this is all a blessing from the Lord. But if you think, first of all, about this idea of discipline, paideia, um, it literally means, or at least etymologically, it means to be with a child. And so the idea is to be with a child by way of teaching them and instructing them. So it can mean education. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of Egypt. Paul was educated under the rabbi Gamaliel and received from him the best education in Judaism available at the time. But it can have also a range of meaning, including uh, not only giving guidance and directing, but even disciplining and chastising. Uh, it's the same term that's used of Jesus being scourged in preparation for his crucifixion. So we might say this discipline, then, is a structured, purposeful teaching and training, as opposed to the kind of informal ad hoc instruction that we might give to children when we're at home or in the road or lying down or rising up. There's a lot of education that just goes on informally. Q&A times. You know, you're on the road trip and beside the question, are we there yet? There are questions about, what's that over there, and what is that, and do you see that up there, and uh, so all of that. That's informal instruction, but here we're talking about something more systematic, so some, uh, more organized. Big picture instruction, goal-oriented instruction. And again, it has to include principles and methods that are consistent with the goals in view. You have to know where you're going to end up. You know, if you want to end up with a Cadillac with those big, cool fins, 
They don't have big, cool fins anymore, sad to say. Then you're going to start with certain parts and stages to get to that goal. So the methodology is dictated both by the principles and by the goal that is there informed by our biblical theology. And this instruction has some teeth in it. It includes external enforcements, things like chastening, or positively incentives and rewards, things to help move the child or the student along in the process. It requires consistency. It requires persistence and a great deal of patience, line upon line, precept upon precept, a little here, a little there, building up the process. And God promises that this instruction will be effective. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. On the negative side, or on the corrective side, is this other term, nuthesia, admonition. Uh, some of you will recognize this is the term from which J. Adams coined the idea of nuthetic confrontation or nuthetic counseling. It means to warn, but in that warning also to teach, to direct. Uh, this in a sense, addresses the errors or the, the uh, sins that arise in the process, the things that need to be fixed along the way. It means a verbal, a personal verbal correction that is specifically addressed to the inner person of the student or of the child. So again, you might enforce outwardly some kind of discipline but that discipline needs also to be addressed to the heart and ultimately take root in the heart. And so this nuthesia includes the appeal to the heart, the appeal to the conscience. So, you know, when we badger children, um, when we intimidate them with uh, yelling and carrying on, uh, when we harangue, when we guilt trip them into obedience, we're not doing what Nuthesia tells us to do. Uh, we're trying to use fleshly substitutes. Um, and so we need to learn how to address the words of correction to the heart. So between the two, the teaching, the instruction, the training with external enforcements, and then this inner confrontation of the heart, correcting and encouraging in the right direction, they're really closely related, interrelated, really synergistic elements of the same process. And we can call this Christian nurture. And that is what we're called to do. And again, I mentioned earlier, I think, this is really the pattern that we have in Scripture itself. When Paul says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for doctrine, for reproof, that is, telling us what we did wrong or what we misunderstood, and correction, showing us how to fix it. Now again, you get a math paper back and... 
It's got all these check marks, wrong, 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 wrong. You don't learn a whole lot from that, but if the professor has taken enough time to go through your computations and show you where you made your mistakes, then you, you can learn to fix it. And uh, we can't just rebuke. We must correct. Let him who stole steal no longer, but let him labor with his hands so that he might become a generous giver. That's the kind of process. Rebuke and correction. They go together. And then finally, training in righteousness. Doing this over and over and over and over until the habits of heart and life are formed through the discipline that the child needs. Well, what's true of Scripture then, our source is an outline for what we do when we teach the Scriptures. Pastors need to do this. They need to teach and rebuke and correct and do it week after week after week, training our congregations in righteousness. And that's what we as parents need to do as we carry out the nurture of our children. The purpose for the giving of Scripture is to make Christians... And in this case, our covenant children, complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, ready for every good work because they have been adequately prepared. That's our task. Remember, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there you go. The uh, 100% you, if you will, is the teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And the 100% God is, you are my workmanship created by me in Christ Jesus for these good works that you might walk in them. They go together. And how do we do it? By this teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Now, we need to fulfill this task. Again, you should, we've done this enough now in a compressed enough time. Here's what we need to do. We can't do it! So what do we do? We trust. We pray. We rely upon God, the Holy Spirit, working within us. Effective discipleship, as we've seen, must address the heart, but the Spirit of God alone can change The heart can renew us. Again, back to Ezekiel 36. When God pours out His Holy Spirit, He will give His people, our children, a new heart. And of course, this nurture is not a substitute for regeneration and the inner working of sanctification by the Holy Spirit. It's rather the means that the Spirit uses in order to effect that change. But there have been times in the history of even Presbyterianism. Uh, Bushnell's book on Christian nurture is a good example. It's got some really wonderful things to say and some really bad stuff to say all mixed together because the idea was segueing from a regeneration-based nurture of children to a moralistic, pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps-be-a-good-citizen kind of discipling. So we want to emphasize that need for the sovereign changing of the heart by the Holy Spirit. I'll take out the heart of stone. I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you so that you will, to cause you to 
walk in my statutes, and be faithful to obey me. But it doesn't take us very long as parents, as we do our 100% or our 90% or our 40% on a really bad day, maybe 2 or 3%, as we set ourselves to the task to understand that at best we can only teach, we can only commend the faith to our children. We can try to persuade them and win them, but ultimately these things must be taught by the Spirit. If you look at 1 Corinthians 2, again, a passage that you're no doubt familiar with, Paul makes this point. It's the Spirit alone who can powerfully convict and persuade. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, through the Word of the Spirit, in the giving of Scripture, and then in the receiving of the truth by our reception of the, Spirit, of the Scriptures. These things God has revealed through His Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. And in the flesh, our children cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to all of us by nature. We are not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But as the Spirit regenerates, as the Spirit illuminates, and as the Spirit disciples through us, then our children begin to grasp what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what God has prepared for them as their heritage of faith. Now we might talk about the corporate dimension of this task a little bit more. I alluded to this in the first hour. Um, Somebody famously said, it takes a village to raise a child. See, I can't even bring myself to utter the name. But you catch the allusion. Well, it doesn't take a village, but it does take a kingdom. It takes the kingdom of God to nurture disciples, our children. And here I just want to make a few observations about Christian nurture in the family and then Christian nurture in the school, but I'm putting mental quotation marks because I'm not thinking about necessarily one form, but the kind of schooling that will become clear in a moment, and then Christian nurture within the church. The family, of course, is the beginning of everything. We learn our first lessons in every course in life in the family. And so the first lessons of faith 
are taught in the home from mom and dad, and that's foundational to everything that follows. And again, we could have another lesson or another series of lessons on the the developmental stages of Christian nurture within the home, and that would be profitable enough. Laying foundations. Certainly we can think about family worship, learning to worship God, to call upon the name of the Lord, both in our family devotions Uh, gathering as a family around the Word of God, around prayer and worship. And different families, uh, you know, they're more or less successful in a uh, consistent practice there, and we have different ways of doing it. And and I don't know that there's one uh, best way and certainly not one exclusive way, but again, we're trying to, to teach our children these habits of heart, Uh, revolving around an instinct to worship. I mean, just something as simple as asking, giving thanks to God and asking his blessing on our food. You know, we pray, well, when we had our kids, and still, we we pray in restaurants. um, And every once in a while, you know, somebody will notice and think you're really weird. Um... But, you know, isn't it, an, isn't it a wonderful instinct that you can't put a piece of food in your mouth without giving thanks? Not because there's a rule somewhere that says you must always say grace before a meal. But because it's become so ingrained in you that every morsel comes from the hand of a faithful father into my mouth and I'm not going to say anything about it? And you know, when for one reason or another I don't do that, I feel a profound loss. Like I've really missed something important. I won't quite say the food doesn't taste as good, but it's almost like that. Well, that's an instinct. That's one of these heart habits I'm talking about that just becomes part of who you are. So do we have to say grace before a meal? Always, you know, sometimes people say, Is the, have we blessed the food yet? Well, I don't know that we were blessing the food. I didn't know there was anything wrong with the food. Do you know something that I don't know? <laughs> we were giving thanks to the giver of the food. Have we given thanks yet? That's the question. So, but you know as well as I do, <laughs> there's always those Times, you know, a lot of commotion at the dinner table, and you say grace, and there's some more commotion at the dinner table, and then you're ready to eat, and somebody says, did we pray yet? (laughs) I guess not. (laughs) Let's do it again. And if Dad says, did we pray yet? (laughs) Okay. So there's that kind of thing going on, teaching these practices, even before we really understand the why as children, yet they become, oh yeah, that's the other one, right? Uh, You forget, you're charging ahead, and then the little guy says, Daddy, we didn't pray yet. He's ahead of the the curve on that. Uh, But then also, I mentioned teaching our children this parenting in the pews, as one author put it. Uh, nurturing our children in the practices of corporate worship. 
and even learning to delight. Now, I understand as well as the rest of you that getting one kid or five kids or ten kids, especially young ones, getting them through the door of the church is, is accomplishment enough. <clears throat> but to build in our children that anticipation of the joy that will come when we assemble with God's people before the throne of grace to worship Him. You know, sometimes, you know, kids are really uninhibited, and so I hear from children something that I'm pretty sure came from dad's mouth or mom's mouth that suggested that, you know, this is an awful lot of work to get to church, and was, is it really going to be worth it? Sad, sad that we don't build in them an anticipation. This is church day. You know, we are, shall we call it the Christian Sabbath? Shall we call it Resurrection Day? Shall we call it Sunday? Well, let's call it church day, because that's what it is. We're going to be with the Lord and his people. Then there's, of course, the basic training in the faith, the growing Bible knowledge through the reading and instruction in the Word, and then other tools like catechism and Bible memory and so forth. Uh, it's in the home that we begin to develop the skills of personal peacemaking. Uh, one of my favorite books on marriage is Walter Wangren's As for Me and My House, and he makes as the centerpiece of that book about marriage uh, his chapters on Effecting reconciliation, basically learning the skill of confessing your sin, confronting your sin, forgiving your sin, and implementing the reconciliation. And his argument is very simple. You guys are sinners, and sin is going to breach your relationship over and over and over again. So one of the most important skills for a married couple is what do we do when sin separates us? Well, we need to know, just like if you're going to drive a car around, even in this computerized age, you better know where the jack is and where the spare is, because when you get that spare tire, the computer isn't going to do you a bit of good. And if you can't find the jack, or if there is no jack. So since you know you're going to use that tool, you better know where it is and how to use it. Well, we all say we're sinners. But few of us develop in advance the skills of confronting sin in a loving way, in a restorative way, confessing our sins, forgiving those sins. Well, those are things that need to be taught to our children early on. We often address the sin with respect to God, and then we say, tell your brother you're sorry. Tell your sister you're sorry you smacked her and you'll never do it again. I'm sorry, and I'll never smack you again. Smack! <laughs> All right, so it takes time. But learning the skills of biblical peacemaking and problem-solving, like who's going to use the iPad for the next half hour? Okay? So those are the kinds of things, that the foundations that we lay in the home. The school, I'm thinking about the extension of the family, consistent with the commitments and goals of the family. I think there's flexibility in method, certainly in recent years, the whole idea of 
Doing this in the home by parents has grown, and many of you have probably taken advantage of that. It's also interesting that homeschooling that initially was justified uh, as homeschooling has now segued more and more into co-op schooling. You see, we really can't escape the diversity of labor and the diversity of gifts within the body of Christ. We can't all learn Latin. And it's better to find somebody who will learn it and teach all of our kids. But whatever method you use, here we're, in a sense, exploring the worldview implications, the big picture of our Christian education. We're teaching our children to identify and then destroy the arguments and every lofty opinion that is raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. It needs to be comprehensive. It needs to be systematic. And it needs to be rigorous, challenging. We need to think sharper, more rigorously than our non-believing counterparts. It also gives our children the opportunity to work together. Yes, it's academic work, it's homework, it's those kind of things, but beginning to build relationships that are associated with a common task rather than just kind of living in the same house. Now again, this may be done in your house, but it's still a different structural mindset. But at least, and and I know there are different practices of Christians vis-a-vis the public school system, but, you know, I, whatever you want to do with me, I, I just cannot see how we can hand our children to the priests and prophets of Baal to teach them about 90% of their life. If Christ is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And if our children can be taught that there's a whole vast life out there that they can live successfully and happily without reference to Christ, then they don't have to deny the faith to lose the impact of the faith. So whether you homeschool or use Christian schools or, or, or whatever, please make sure that this bigger picture, that larger learning is done from the standpoint of the fear of the Lord. And that can't be done by pagans, even loving, caring, well-meaning pagans. I, uh, I wonder about the collapse of the evangelical church on certain issues today that is so complete. I mentioned this earlier. If this isn't in part the result of generations of teaching Christian people, devoted people, that politics really doesn't have anything to do with religion. And now that harvest is coming in, and we don't like it. We need to be consistent in our practice of education. And then in the church, too often the church is left with the remedial instruction, taking up the slack for the family and the quote-unquote school. And so churches teach catechism because parents may not. There are Sunday school classes because children might not be discipled in the Word of God at home. And again, you can extend that for sure, but oftentimes we're playing catch-up. And we do what has to be done. 
If parents are not doing it, the church has to take that on. But beyond that, I think the specific ministry of the church is to equip the saints for the practice of ministry, building up the body of Christ. And so learning to serve God in the church, not only participating in worship, but help making that community function. So I, I really like it when some of our teens are, are willing to, to teach in Sunday school or, or to, to take a class here uh, at family camp. Um, you know, I first started attending school after I became a Christian. I was a, I was a 10th grader, and, and I'm not recommending this, but the people in charge of the Sunday school needed a 7th grade boy's Sunday school teacher, and I said, oh, well, I'll do it. And uh, so I immediately became a Sunday school teacher. Uh, the seventh grade boys thought having a high school Sunday school teacher was way cool, so I immediately had rapport. So all week long, I'd take what I was learning in my Bible class, and then I'd regurgitate it for the Sunday school class on Sunday, and, and it worked. But having a heart, teaching our children not to just receive, but to begin to give. This whole matter of short-term missions, as it's blossomed in the last 10 or 15 years in the OPC, particularly here in Southern California, has been wonderful to give our young people opportunities to engage in service, to test their gifts, to refine their gifts. Well, that's what the church should be doing, the local church and the regional church, even the denomination. And then having a vision then for the larger kingdom. And this brings me back to those arrows shot forth. To, to give the children that kind of Pisgah's Mountain uh, experience of the world. I mean, back to Hebrews 2. God has subjected the world to come to his people and now already to Christ. And there it is. <laughs> Happily... Unlike Moses, our children can enter in. Our children can take possession. They don't have to die on the wilderness side. And so we train them, we prepare them, we give them structured opportunities, and then we let them go and trust God to use them mightily for the advancement of his kingdom and his righteousness. Lord God, thank you for our children. They are such wonderful blessings and such trials all wrapped up in one package. And we can see in just what we've talked about today, the, the broad scope. And, and mo many of us knew it was that big. Some of us, it's dawning on us. Some of us look back to a work largely completed, at least within our own immediate families, and yet now there is the, the opportunity to disciple within the church. Um, but it's your work, and it's a glorious work, and we pray that even as we get weary in it, we would be invigorated by it and pursue it with all our heart and soul and strength, because it is the word of our King for us, and it is the promise of our God to subject the world to come to us in Christ, to the glory and praise of your name. Amen. Thank you for listening.